0: Hey everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Alex Guerovich, the founder and chief investment officer of Hunte Investments, a Bay Area investment firm. Alex is also the author of two books, The Next Perfect Trade and his newest one, The Trades of March 2020, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Alex led Ponte's macro strategy in two thousand and twenty to rank second by net return, according to Barclay Hedge. And it also ranked in the top 10 of emerging managers in all strategies by Eureka Hedge. Alex has more than 20 years of trading experience, and he was hailed by The Wall Street Journal in 2003 as the star trader of JP Morgan, where he served as managing director of its global macro trading. Alex and I talked about his divergent views. It's his view that rates are going to zero. And deflation, not inflation, is the concern. I really enjoyed this conversation with Alex, and I think you will, too. Alex Guerovich, Chief Investment Officer of Hante Investments and the author of The Trades of March 2020. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on.
1: Thank you very much. I'm very happy that we at last get a chance to talk.
0: I am, too. Um, Well, you are someone who is well-known in the macro world, as well as the all things fixed income, and I was hoping just for the folks to get to know you a little bit better, Alex, if we can kind of run through your background a bit, tell us uh, about your backstory.
1: Well, uh, people probably can tell that I'm speaking with an accent. I was born in St. Petersburg in the former Soviet Union. I came to America in 89, I studied math, I was always like, I grew up as a mathematician, but also I was always interested in strategic games so for me it was like very natural to go into finance but i did get phd in mathematics from the university of chicago and then i decided i kind of done my part in math when i went into finance i'm giving a very quick round through but feel free to zoom in on anything it's just more interesting yeah so as yeah. a very quick round through i uh, i uh went to work on wall street i started uh, trading fixed income derivatives first as a market maker but then eventually I started to focus on proprietary trading, which led me to like uh, look at long term positioning, and looking across the world in various asset classes and eventually running my own global macro portfolio JP Morgan and then, uh, and then taking off to do hedge funds on my own.
0: Yeah. A lot of folks um, probably remember you from your time uh, running global macro trading at J.P. Morgan, and uh, you mentioned studying mathematics. That was something you're really interested in. How did you get interested in going into finance or Wall Street specifically? What was that for you?
1: Well, it's hard to tell when was the exact moment, but I know it was very early. I mean, even when I was in the kindergarten, I used to start commodity exchanges out of toys with my friends. So like even in preschool, I already had an inclination for trading. So I definitely had this interest. I think I am very interested in strategies. So I always played strategic games. Uh, first, I played chess when I was very little, then I started to play go, poker, then I played very other. So I played go, then I played poker, then I played other strategic games. And um, I think when I started to get, extra, like when I saw the movie Wall Street in the 80s, it was super exciting to me. I started to like, get this idea that finance is basically a big strategic game, except that the difference is you actually get paid money for playing it.
0: Interesting. So it was a combination of things, um, strategy games, like chess, uh, poker, and then you mentioned, uh, kind of the the iconic movie, uh, wall street. Talk to me a bit about, um, you know, strategy games like poker or chess and how they translate into investing.
1: I think, Poker translates a lot, probably more than things like chess. And there are some other games that translate better. I think any kind of gaming translates because it's all about strategy. There is a difference between thinking in terms of strategy and thinking in terms of analysis. If you think in terms of analysis, like if you're an economist, you're trying to find a solution. You're trying to say like, what is the GDP next year? What is going to be the unemployment report? I'm trying not to fixate like this, not to like put my mind, Oh. I'm expecting the unemployment report to be something. Or rather, I want to have a system of responses. What's going to happen if this happens, and what's going to happen if that happens? That's how strategy works. If your opponent makes this move, that's how you respond. The reason why poker is very relevant to investing because it teaches you certain type of like psychological fortitude, which is very relevant to running portfolio over the long run. It's not so much about just decision-making, just finding the best move purely like analytically, you realize when there's money at stake, when your career is at stake, your moods, your whether you've lost or made money previously will affect your decision making possible cloud or bias your judgment. And Porker teaches you how to control that, how to keep your judgment clear, how to push uh, when you're winning, how to cut down when you're losing, and how to measure your own ability to keep playing the game. And also to keep your psychological fortitude to do it when it's necessary.
0: Yeah. When you mention um, the psychological fortitude, it, it just reminds me of um, your book, uh, the, the Trades of March 2020, which was a fascinating read because it was really like taking you inside like that mindset and all of your communications. Like you, a lot of the book for folks who haven't picked it up, it's got a lot of Slack channel exchanges from the the month of March in, in 2020. And um, you also wrote about like the psychology and the emotional state and kind of journey of a CIO. I was hoping maybe we could explore that A bit and talk to me about like those things and how they kind of come into play in investing the psychology and the emotions
1: yeah it's definitely a big portion because um depending on what style is you're investing you tend to face different kind of challenges but you're always going to feel challenges in fact when i feel really challenged by what's going on i always remind myself like one of the mantras i have is um, if I did not well, like, let me say it like this, since I've chosen a challenging profession, I expect to face challenges. That is, anyone can fantasize about each of your trades working and everything going smoothly, but it never goes like that for anybody. So things are not going smoothly. If you're a long term investor like myself and some of my trades take years to play out, sometimes I could be in pain for a year or two years just kind of sitting there and waiting for certain trades to work out and things not going my way. Even if overall, I think the picture is developing my way, but the markets are not confirming, not giving me the money yet. And how to go through that journey. When it is the time and tell yourself, well, I'm, I've been too stubborn, I am wrong, or where they say like, no, I need to be patient, I'm on the right track. Like one of those examples I like to give is, If you draw a line on the ground which is one foot wide and just like a yellow line and say, walk on this line, any of us can do it. We can just walk on the line, right? Well, any of the people who are normally able, right, they can walk on the line. And then uh, uh, say, but now imagine that you do the same line over a precipice and make it a bridge, one foot wide bridge. Now, most of us won't be able to do it, though actually the difficulty of the exercise didn't change. You still just have to make your steps exactly the same way, but we would, be, we would experience vertigo, we would be scared. So this is the reality. When you are in the world of investment, when your money, your career, your investors, your reputation are at stake, you cannot completely diverse yourself from all those feelings, psychological feelings you have and just call coldly think about your portfolio decisions. And I guess what I was trying to promote in my book is that it's really you really can't expect to make people purely logical decisions. Or what rather you can do is try to make the best decisions you can can, while being aware that you're being psychologically affected. And I think in the trades of March 2020, I also tried to emphasize what happens uh, that your professional life is not totally diverse from your personal life. Like you personally also experiencing pandemic, it's not just you're worried about your portfolio. You could be worried about your personal safety, about the kids being in school, not in school, about vulnerable family members, about just whether you're going to have toilet paper in the stores next day. All of those things that would go through pandemic and how all of this blends together uh, and how you can be the best money manager or in general, the best decision maker in that type of situation.
0: Yeah, Um In 2020, I I should just note this for the folks who are watching or listening. um, Hante's macro strategy in 2020 uh, ranked second by net returns, according to Barkley Hedge. And it was in the top 10 of emerging managers in all strategies, according to Eureka Hedge. And it's fascinating, like, for, again, for folks who haven't seen the book, like, just to kind of go in and inside the mindset and kind of see real time how you all were thinking about trades. uh, Why do you... I'm sure you get asked this all the time. Why, why did you write the book? What was it that you wanted folks to take away, or what do you want them to learn from the book?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I think in the book itself, I um, quoted something that Winston, Winston Churchill, I think, said something that history is written by victors. So it's very easy to write a book about the year you've done well, right? So when people are like, if there is a year in which I did not do relatively well, performed relatively well, probably someone else should write the book. So first of all, this is an important caveat. I'm very shameless about the fact that I'm writing about the time when I did well. I will write about my mistakes, but I wanna show how my strategy works and how like the stuff that I, what I think was interesting for me, I wrote another book, uh, The Next Perfect Trade uh, several years ago, and that book had qualitatively outlined my strategic approach and I wanted to, I realized that I had an interesting opportunity to show how the strategic approach works in a kind of life intense market environment. And I think the origin of the book was kind of like almost anecdotal in a sense that we did so much transaction volume in the month of March, 2020. It felt so long that at the end of the month, I just at some point joke, like someone has to write a book about this month because every trading day was like a month in itself. So it felt like the whole month felt like several trading years, just in terms of the volume and intensity and what kind of swings the markets went through, how many changes happened in just one month. And then uh, I realized that I could be the person to write this book because I had a very comprehensive transaction record and internal chat records. So instead of, uh, and I think a lot of, there are a lot of books discussing like stories about trading and some of them are very good books when people like count their memories of various trades and how they work through them but i think before we had those really precise uh, records this is unavoidably somewhat biased even anything i write about what happened six, many years ago will be biased by my memories so it's not getting precise but the idea that i actually can comment i can comment on events but i can record events exactly so there will be no doubt what someone said at this second, how we felt on that day, what was the market doing, that was kind of unique to have not just the chart, but also the record of all the conversations easily available. And I felt that will create a very good way for people to feel the zeitgeist of it. And I felt I wanted to share it for especially for inspiring traders. Uh, it's like as if you're a medical student, you can read anatomy books, but that was the chance for people to actually walk into that operating room and see what is exactly happening step-by-step step in the operating room, especially during crisis.
0: Yeah. It's like, it could be like must, it should be like, you know, must read. like must, you just must read this if you want to be a, an aspiring trader. It's like one of these must read books. And uh, you mentioned like this kind of like precise account with all of the Slack messages, Alex, I, I don't think I've ever seen a book that actually used like Slack exchanges yet. We all use Slack now. So um, it's, just a fascinating way to get a glimpse into what that was like. Um, I'd also imagine like a lot of folks kind of want to hear from you, Alex, um, on all things macro and what right now is the big picture macro view for you today. And then I was hoping maybe we can start to, um, you know, zoom in on some of these uh, things that will come up in this conversation.
1: Well, I think it is always interesting uh, when you, people ask you, um, about your macro view, it's most interesting to say in which ways it is divergent or at least ex- or extreme. Say for example, and there is camp, two camps and I am fairly extreme on the camp that I think that rates are going to zero. That interest rates, direction of interest rates is ine- inevitable towards zero. And when I say inevitable, it does not really mean inevitable in a sense people usually use it. Inevitable means that they're just the most likely trajectory. And I feel like deflation and not inflation should be the concern. I think that's where I'm, at least in the United States, that's where I probably either diverge from many and probably on the extreme side of the deflation camp.
0: I was going to ask you why.
1: Well, in the previous discussions I had about it, I basically distilled it to two words, policy lag. So it is a very hard thing to... Even for me, even though I'm a big proponent of this theory, it's very hard for me to really get my thinking around it because we're not used to think this way. For example, we're seeing Fed raises interest rates and inflation numbers are still high. Fed raises interest rates some more, inflation numbers are still high. Um, Stock market falls, but job market numbers are strong. Uh, So maybe stock market needs to fall some more, job market is still strong. And we're kind of like, well, I guess market is not weakening and inflation is not weakening. And that's how our mind works. reality is that there is a huge lag between the conditions that generate inflation and economic activity and actual the result of those. So if you really think about this and say to yourself, nothing that the Fed did this year Nothing that happened in the stock market or asset markets, nothing that happened to the balance sheet, nothing that happened to the dollar this year, had anything to do with any of the inflation numbers this year. How would that sit with you? Because if the history of monetary policy lag tells us that ups, almost nothing, except possibly some effect on headline by energy prices, nothing that they did this year yet has anything to do with employment and inflation numbers we're seeing. So this in high but stable inflation, and strong but stable employment are the result of actually extremely profligate fiscal and monetary policies we've seen in 2020, 2021. For example, people are saying, well, consumers are still strong, consumer spending is strong. And I'm saying, yes, of course it's strong because we've been handing money to consumers for two years. Why wouldn't it be strong? Do you think you can suck this money out in one month back? No, it's a process. So right now we're the process of sucking the liquidity out which has been poured into the market for two years, but we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So two years from now, so if what we're seeing right now is the result of what was happening in late 2020 and early 2021, depending upon which indicators will lag on various indicators, what do you think we will see in 2023, 2024 when everything reversed? Now we're seeing unprecedented tightening, we're seeing very strong dollar, we're seeing falling asset prices, we're seeing reduction of balance sheet, uh, we see hard assets either stopping their rise or trending down, we're seeing as uh, commodity prices weakening, we're, we're seeing even, even those prices which structurally still should be going up, even those are going down like food and energy, right? They stalled in certain areas and price just because it does not matter how much the shortage is, if there's not enough dollars to pay for something, the price starts to go down. We're really running into this shortages of dollars right now everywhere around the world. But given how policy works, we are not and we should not be and we could not be seeing this on CPI this year. So I think we will see it in the next two years. And we'll, and by the time we will see it, it will be too late. Inflation will be catastrophically falling and there's nothing Fed will be able to do about it. That's my central scenario.
0: Yeah. I'll, I'll, let's, let's start to... Um zoom in a bit um so your view is divergent you see rates going to zero um and deflation not inflation is the concern um on the rates going to zero front do you have kind of a path that there or like a timeline like what are you thinking as it relates to the rate outlook
1: um is always the hard part because um you know if you ask me even earlier in 2022 you if you ask me in January, probably like December 2001 to January 2004 I might have told you i'm not sure there'll be any rate hikes at all in the cycle. And obviously I was dramatically wrong right, the reason why I was dramatically wrong is because I underestimated the positive feedback that was coming from inflation, because what happened in 2021 the real interest rates got so negative because inflation was so high interest rates were so low that it just created this kind of liquidity tsunami that kept self-accelerating. And now it's self-decelerating, but how fast it will take this to turn? Will the Fed hike this time and stop? Possibly, but will they hike two or three times and get to more and get to maybe 5% or even 6%? All of those are very valid possibilities. I'm actually trying what I mentioned before, I'm trying not to try to solve for it. Of course, it's hard not to, as a trader, it's hard not to think of exact times and dates and levels. But I think it's very hard to solve at what point the Fed will pause. But they're determined. They stated it very clearly that they're not gonna stop till at least employment get weaker, and they're probably not gonna cut till inflation turns around. And by the definition, it's almost un- logically, it's mathematically impossible that they will not be too late. And they baked it in, they almost like baked it in because they said it that way. We're gonna we know that there is a lag and we keep going with those 12 months backwards looking indicators until we see them turning. So by definition, they will be too late. Now, if inflation will have turned, and then the policy will be way, way too tight. And just as it was getting looser and looser in 2021 because inflation was rising, it will start getting tighter and tighter um, as inflation will be falling much faster than any rate cuts that we'll be able to do. So uh, what, how soon that will play out, there is a lot of wiggle room there. But if you push me, my kind of target is I think rates, policy rate will have to get to zero by the end of 2024 but what path it will take there, I'm not sure. And the reason is because I believe in this kind of two year lag. I think like things right now sufficiently turn around two years from now, it's very hard for me to imagine them not at least cutting rates aggressively. And I think that rate cuts will probably start in the middle of 2023. That's like, if you put a gun to my head, guess when the rate cuts are most likely to start. I think maybe second quarter of 2023. But if they are gonna start Last quarter of 2023, I shouldn't be surprised at all. And then it will take them a year to get them down to zero. That's how I'm thinking about it. Mm
0: -hmm. Alex, I'm so grateful to have you on the show and and to, you know, be able to hear you, um, you know, share your expertise. And I know folks at home really appreciate it. Can you help us walk through, like, how deflation kicks in and how it ripples through the economy and, like, the implications of Deflation.
1: Wow, this is a this is a very broad and difficult question, and I'll I'll be upfront. Probably, like some economists can answer it more than I can because what happens is that defl in some sense inflation deflation reflects the price of money. You give less more money to people, they'll have more money to buy stuff, prices will go up. You take money away, uh, price will go down. That's the demand side of inflation. Of course, there's a supply side of inflation. I think there's a lot of factors at work and some of them will work very slowly because we don't have overstretched balance sheets for consumers or corporations and that's part of the reason why I actually think this um, recession will be deeper and longer because in the past at this stage we would already have a crisis of some kind and fed would come to the rescue with aggressive easing instead they're tightening while they probably should be already easing if you look at this two year lack of policy, but they're still tightening. So they're doing the opposite. So I think that's why they're gonna run us into much deeper and more protracted recession that we we'll probably have seen since 30s. That would be my best guess. So there will be more like almost like I think we're running into depression and possibly global depression, not just recession, but not complete certainty, but I think that's what's happening. So how we will suck uh, out money out of the system, we don't know. One of the things, for example, we don't have enough Globally, we don't have enough energy really to support current level of economic growth. So either prices of energy have to go up or, or growth has to slow down. I think growth will slow down because money is getting sucked out out of the system. There'll be just not enough money to pay for energy. So manufacturing, instead of paying more for energy uh, and making the uh, products be more expensive, factories such as closing down. We've already seen stuff like this happening in Europe. So stores, instead of charging more, like, I don't know, we've probably all seen like now our favorite restaurants and coffee shops closing down because they cannot find stuff. So what's happening is when there is not enough money in the system, instead of paying more and charging more, at some point, that is the first reaction. You pay people more, you charge more. But then the reaction starts like, well, we just cannot operate, will be profitable. So things start shutting down, then, it goes into job cuts. Slowly job market starts deteriorating. Starting from some corporations drawing down the inventories because they build them up using negative interest rates. Now they gonna collapse the loans because they no longer want to pay high interest rates to support the inventory. They're going to collapse the loans and reduce the inventories. So that'll further slow down manufacturing eventually translates into jobs. It was like in 07, 08, uh, it was at first not clear why the housing crisis like subprime crisis will cause a broad recession but it certainly did and the broad job losses started but it took a little while the crisis started in the real crisis started in august 2007. it took maybe quite a bit of time before it became clear that we're having a broad recession at least a year so some so we're like working towards it but it's going to be i think a slow process of getting there but the process will be deep and profound because measures to to forestall it are not being taken.
0: Um, this might be a bit of a, a naive question, and I'm not an expert, and that's why I'm grateful to have you on. But you mentioned like the money getting sucked out. There's not enough money in the system. I think even earlier you said like just not enough um, dollars. Is, is it because people start to hoard their dollars? They get concerned. They get worried. Or like where does all that money go? Where does wh- why is there why is there a shortage of dollars?
1: Well, shortage of dollars happen. Well, we can, first of all, we can see that there is a shortage of dollars uh, observ- observationally, right? It's not something I'm inventing here. Like maybe several months ago, I was not actually so smart as to predict this huge rise in the dollar. It caught me a little bit by surprise. I tried to adjust to this new environment, but the, we already see the dollars going up. We already see that uh, asset hard assets which are very good indicator of dollar availability such as gold and Bitcoin and real estate are stalling. At the very least they're stalling or going down. We already see all those processes in place. Now, how they work, there is a lot of different ways in which they work. And um, well, first of all, there is such a simple thing as balance sheet reduction, right? When they reduce balance sheet and don't repurchase the treasuries, that's the is getting taken out of the system. Another thing that I mentioned is collapsing of loans. That is, when you're coming, when you're a business owner or an individual, and you're coming to the point when your loan is due, you either take another loan, which keeps money in the system, or you actually pay down the loan. When you pay down the loan, it disappears from your balance sheet and the bank balance sheet. And every loan that is being collapsed this way actually takes money out of the system. It's money that's not being recycled in the system. And this incremental choice to collapse loans because you no longer can pay high interest. Is a is a way that amount of dollars on the system is being reduced, it might not immediately affect consumers part of the reason they're not very affected by that is because a lot of them are locked into. Uh, pretty low rate mortgages even adjustable mortgages that people got in 2020 2021 will not start hurting till probably early 2023 or maybe even later, because most people have at least three year fixed so even that layer of people who have adjustable mortgages are not yet suffering yet. Yet. They will soon. So uh and because mortgages are fixed, people are kind of frozen in their houses. They cannot buy a house because mortgage is high, they cannot sell it. They want to sell a house because uh, they will lose the value of the mortgage which is like insanely low rate relative to where the interest rates are now. So that is that situation is locked. But on the level of commercial loans I think you will see collapsing, collapsing of loans, and that will result in collapsing of economic activity.
0: Yeah. Um, th- when when the, those loans st- um, stall, that's when you'll see the collapse um, in economic activity. You mentioned um, this notion of like a deeper and longer recession. You also brought up a notion of a global depression. Can we explore that a little bit further, like your thesis there,
1: well, well, first of all, obviously, as, as I already premised it, this is not a certainty. This is just I'm just talking about what scenarios seem to be more likely than others. It's very hard to predict recessions and depressions. So the thesis, again, for me is that um, in the past, we had a certain type of cycle over the last decade, which was somewhat virtuous because it was happening in a disinflationary environment. So what was happening is. Uh, Fed will start hiking till they break something. Then there'll be some kind of systemic problem, uh, like in 2007, 2008, and then the East or like in 2001, um, whatever, internet collapsed, and then the additional kick from September 11th. Uh, there's a systemic problem. They add a lot of liquidity and there is a relatively fast recovery, a relatively shaped recovery. People could argue that recovery in 08, was um, 08, or 09 was slow, but if you look at asset prices and stock market and if you look at economic activity, it was still a pretty decent recovery. And I got a thing that is somewhat due to monetary and fiscal policy impulse. And in 2020, the recovery was amazingly fast because the fiscal, not just monetary, but fiscal impulse was extremely strong. So we're having those, um, we're having those cycles, but where this time, what have it taken away from us. We're having already uh, profoundly weak asset markets, and like there's a very significant and protracted bear markets and stocks, which typically precedes the recession. We have a whole bunch of other recession indicators triggered. I will be the first one to admit some of them are not triggered, but there's plenty of those which are triggered. And we, in the midst of all of this happening, we're continuing to tighten monetary and financial conditions. And the other thing that I would point out that we're having slowdown in three major areas in the world, in the U.S. and Eurozone, and in China, synchronously. And China was in the past relatively immune, I think, to slowdowns because they had such a fast growth. And right now, China is going through a lot of uh, shakeups economically. It seems like. There is a lot of pain going on there. I'm not an expert specifically on China, but anyone who looks at macro can see that there is a lot of pain going on there. And if they try to re- relieve this pain while weakening the domestic currency, which they've apparently started doing, that might send a deflationary shock around the world. And it will probably diminish the ability to purchase commodities and further press down commodity prices. So there is a lot The synchronicity between U.S., Europe, and China is uh, very worrying. I mean, worrying in a sense if you're worried about depression. And the fact that as we go into this slowdown, we keep tightening the screws. So I think the probability of this being deep and protracted is relatively very high, relative to what we saw in the past. Whether it will happen, I don't know, but we definitely skewed the odds in that direction.
0: Yeah. Um, you highlighted the synchronicity between the U.S., Europe and, and China and um, also the impact on commodity prices. I, I want to ask you this, too, like how you think this could impact, you know, I'm thinking energy specifically or like oil. How do you think this might impact? That? Well, well,
1: oil and general energy is really pivotal to the story. So you're correct. This is very pivotal to the, to the story because... There are, again, not speaking of my own analysis, but repeating words of anyone who seems to be an expert on energy, there are significant problems with energy infrastructure. I mean, I will probably be not saying to the viewers anything new uh, about the issue that transition to green energy led to a significant decrease of investment in fossil fuels. And even with prices going up, there wasn't enough investment. So during, we might transition in a few years, but during these three years, we're facing energy shortages, and, however, the paradox, like most many people think that that will lead to an avoidable rise in energy prices, but I think what it will lead to is a tremendous fall of demand in energy because of global slowdown. So there are two contradictory forces here: with one that could go up because of lack of supply, or it could go down because of lack of demand. But what I think is going to happen is that given that dollars are getting scarce, there'll be just not enough dollars to purchase energy needed to sustain global growth. And that is a big portion of my argument for the fact that that we might be facing global recession, even possibly global depression. And and in one way you would see that I am wrong if energy prices in the next couple of years continue marching up, it will not necessarily prove for sure that I'm wrong, but it will prove that the economy can still grow and like buy this energy that is needed.
0: You mentioned uh, this slowing down in Europe, the U.S., and China. So is anyone else out there? Is, there? is there anyone who's safe from this scenario?
1: Well, first of all, I would like to say that uh, fortunately unfortunately, China, Europe and US are such a big portion of a global economy that it, all of them going to slow down but basically having a global recession. Mm-mm, the rest of nothing in the rest of the world can make a dent. Now from policy perspective, I think Japan might be in the best position paradoxically because they're not having runaway inflation. I think people waiting for them to have inflationary collapse but i think by the time they have it already the rest of the world will be worried about deflation and japan will find itself in the best situation and also and they're just like they're trading like stars they're they've been always like buying uh, dollars really cheaply when yen is at 100 they intervene and buy dollars now yen is at 150 they're intervening and selling dollars so like they really i feel like japan is really on top of this game and in a year or two they'll 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 feel like having advantage over the rest of the big areas. UK is a little bit of a more complex picture, but paradoxically, UK might also, I think, come out better than people think right now of this situation. But if you look at the like a very big picture, if those three big zones, if Europe, US and China are in trouble, then really everybody's in trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the top of this conversation that your views are divergent. There's like the two camps and there's the kind of like, I guess, the secular inflation camp. What do you think they are missing? Like, what is it that you're seeing in your thesis that they might be missing?
1: You know, what is interesting when I dig in with people who are more inflationary oriented, will end up being almost agreeing on a lot of things. Because there is a lot of people who see a lot of inflation now, they would say they just basically talking about the fact that rates should go to six or seven percent or eight percent but then eventually there will be recession will go to zero so in a sense i'm just shortcutting this argument and saying i don't know where they're going to pick out but they're going to go to zero so there's that category of people who are not really that disagreeing with me they might just disagree a little bit on the timing and the scale i think um also i think. There is a, some disagreement happening about the time horizon on which the forces operate. Like, we're definitely having some secular, or I would say semi secular inflationary processes going on, like the process of onshoring, the energy infrastructure change processes, they are inflationary and kind of deglobalization. It's all of the stuff is inflationary. I think that the cyclical forces are going to overcome them on the next two or three year horizon. But on a longer horizon, we can have those disinflationary forces. So inflationary forces kick in. But on even longer horizon, over a decade horizon, we have again secular deflationary forces, which have to do with demographics, automatization, and eventual resolution of energy problems. So uh, there are different horizons on which things operate, and I think that's what people disagree. But I think where people I most vigorously disagree with are people who are saying that. Inflation is running out of control and the Fed is behind the curve. Uh, This is where I, with those people I vigorously disagree because of the thing I started this conversation with the policy lag. I feel like I see a lot of indications that the Fed is not at all behind the curve, like if we still had stock market going up and everything is heating up and like all the uh, hard assets going up on price, uh, I would say like yes maybe the Fed is still behind the curve. What do I know? But I see a lot of indications that Fed is actually ahead of the curve that they over tightened already. And some people might disagree and say, no, there is a little more tightening. And I say like, okay, fine, if I'm wrong, they've told us that they will tighten until they th- turn this thing around. So I guess where I disagree, I believe I believe in the capacity to things turn around and create this deflation and I feel like they've pretty much sworn to us that they will do it, that they're sworn and they're hell-bent to create deflation right now, create recession and deflation. And by their own words, they admit that there is a policy lag and they admit that they will act only when they see numbers which are way, way lagging. So that's why I probably disagree. What I think people who I most strongly disagree with are people who, in my opinion, don't take into account the policy lag.
0: Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of a line in your book. I'll quote it to you. Um, and it's about the Fed. And And you wrote, as traders, we focus on what central banks will do and how it will affect the markets, not on what they should do. Um, Grant Williams likes to say, the Fed always tightens till they break something. I really liked that line in the book. And so was hoping maybe just to, to double click of it more on the Fed. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I haven't, I'm not I'm certainly not a trader and I'm not an investor but I have been a journalist for call it 12 years and I feel like there's more talk and focus on the Fed than ever before. I don't know. Um but I would love to hear from you and and your kind of outlook for the Fed and the focus on the Fed.
1: Well, the focus on the Fed is obviously important because they are monopolistic issues of dollars. So like you cannot Every, they, they can print as many dollars as they can, or they can take them out of the system. And, and so anything, if you're a trader, let's put it like this, if you care about how things are priced in dollars, you probably should care about someone who is printing dollars, right? So like, for example, if you cared about cars, you would be caring about what the car makers are doing. But as a trader, your performance on any asset is measured in dollars. So it's always two sides of every asset. It's been some kind of like how this asset is doing, and what the how the dollars which are you being used to purchase this asset is doing. I, I I've talked a lot about this at the end of my book about the fact how sometimes asset prices going up doesn't reflect those assets uh, performing particularly well. It just reflects the fact that dollars are not performing well, or, or there's too many dollars to buy those assets. So dollars and asset class is declining. So Fed has complete control of dollars on asset class, and uh, um, they they define the supply, they define the, the price of this asset class in terms of how much you, you need to pay to borrow it. So, of course, the policy is central. I think people, including myself, sometimes over focus on long term guidance from the Fed because people keep saying, like, Fed pivoted, the Fed did this or that, or like right now, people are very much focused on when the Fed will change their mind. But I don't think it is as important because it's really. It's not about when the Fed will change their mind. It's not about like if you, for example, want to be long bonds right now. I want. I don't want to be long bonds because I think the Fed will change their mind and start cutting rates. I think I want to be long bonds because they will have no choice but to start cutting rates in a few months or in a year or maybe in a longer period of time. But it's not. It's not going to be a matter of opinion. When job market will start weakening and inflation start falling, Fed will respond to that. They look at data and then respond to it. What I think is interesting that right now they are caught in a place of responding to data which is particularly lagged, which was not always the case in the past, and that's what makes it just currently different. But like for example in 2018, if you remember, there was a huge talk about the pivot, and I was like, well, what pivot? They were hiking when they saw inflationary data. They started to ease when they saw deflationary data. They always do that and they will always do it. So it's just a matter of uh, all the discussion about what the Fed will do is a little bit of a discussion of timing. Like maybe if you want to do trade very specific option structures, you want to bet on like December Fed funds futures this year. So you care what the Fed will do next to meetings. Yes. But if you want to bet on where the interest rates will be two years from now, it could I think it has very little to do with like personality of the Fed members and what are they thinking or what papers they're reading right now. Because no matter what they will do right now, they'll probably somehow end up at where they should be two years from now. In my opinion, it is zero. And some people might say it's 10%. That's where the divergence is.
0: Yeah. Um With your thesis um, on more of a deflationary, I don't know if you want to say deflationary depression thesis, how do you think about the implications um, for a portfolio and its construction?
1: Well, uh, obviously, some assets look better than others in this environment. So bonds, for example, look much better than stocks in this environment, even though stocks might do not so poorly if rates start coming down. Now experience of previous recessions, depressions, and just generally rate cycle connections, leaves a lot of space for stocks to go down. So I personally probably would be somewhat underweight right now if I were the kind of, like I, I am not, I wouldn't be short stocks here. And I also feel like even before you hit the absolute bottom on the stock market, there are some really good values appearing that you might look for. I don't want to give right now analysis of individual stocks, but I think you can already see stocks that look on the long, in the long run cheap, or at least very reasonable. And there are probably some stocks which have can go further. But I think even cheap stocks, even stocks which look very cheap, can go even cheaper dirt cheap in the next year if we have a real stock market route. And I think historical patterns suggest that stock market could go very significantly further down. So, there's probably if you want to be a little cautious here, I'd probably put less on that, and I would put much more. I basically would try to have as much duration on my portfolio as possible uh, in anticipation of rates eventually falling. And you could, but you could. There are many paths that you can make if you're looking not to like what's going to happen in the next few months, but you're looking a long horizon. As I said. Eventually, there are many stock bets, stock market eventually goes up. And right now, you could maybe find some solid bargains that will look good in the long run. So, I think the opportunities for portfolio, good portfolio performance on the next 10 years are actually pretty good right now. Much better, obviously, than they were earlier this year. Because the classic 60 40 portfolio, any kind of risk parity strategy, which has been performing insanely well for the last almost 20 years um had its worst year ever but I think this correction creates a really good opportunity do
0: you, do you think that classic like 6040 is it is it dead or just had like a really bad year what do you think
1: well 6040 was really uh, run into trouble the last two years and many people pointed out before this crisis that 6040 stopped making sense because bonds stopped acting as a hedge to stocks I think going forward, I'm not an asset allocator so I'm, because I'm, I'm more of a trader. So I trade leveraged portfolios. I don't think of, like, for me, like, I don't think of, am I putting money into stocks or bonds? I'm closer to the disparity way of thinking when I say, like, well, if I'm longer risk assets such as stocks, I'm actually going to buy more bonds than if I didn't have it because it's a hedge, right? But I think uh, the time might be coming when it's actually probably in the long run will perform well. It's just if you ask for my bias, I think bonds will do well before stocks will do well. And I feel like some of the global bonds have so much upside to them after the recent sell-off that they can have almost like stock-like returns.
0: And then going back to your, um, your, your thesis on a deflationary depression, is there anything that would make you alter your thesis? And is there anything that would... Reinforce it for you, like even further.
1: Well, with regards to altering thesis, I'm often being asked this question, and I always have a hard time answering it. And the reason is that what makes you alter your thesis is usually something that you could not have foreseen. When you see a turn of events that you did not anticipate, that's when you alter your thesis. Because anything I can anticipate taking uh, happening is kind of almost by definition falls into the range of my thesis. Um, I, I honestly don't know, Like for example, if the energy prices will continue marching up, if the commodity prices will start going up, if the hard assets will start going up, like if real estate in US will start going up and stock market goes up and precious metals go up and if the currencies go up, that's what maybe my challenge, and that's significantly you not know, like little bounces. Then your my thesis is beginning to be somewhat challenged, uh, and if there are some really, I think, but I think more likely challenge to my thesis will come from political um, perturbations. For example, again, without giving any partisan views, but imagine that we have democratic sweep again, and we have some kind of very strong stimulus or some kind of really. Dramatic rise in federal minimum wages, some kind of very strong inflationary pushes on the political frontier that could probably change the situation. But again, this is not something I can at the moment anticipate or even measure how it's gonna affect things. And what would reinforce my thesis, I guess I would have to start seeing uh job market weakening. That would be like the f- that would be like the cinch for seeing my thesis work out if we see the weakening job market.
0: Yeah. Alex, um, this has been a really interesting conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot from you and that's why I love hosting this show because I get to have folks like you on to just hear their um, ideas. I I want to pass it back to you. And if you have any sort of, Parting thoughts for the folks at home who are watching or listening and also at the same time, like let them know where they can go to learn more, follow you on social media or pick up your book.
1: Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and thank you for giving me a chance to speak to a broad audience. It was a pleasure. Um, I can be found on, on Twitter very easily. That's how we connected to begin with. Um, it's agurivich23, so my first initial and my last name. I have a verified account so people can find that way and find the website of my company, any of my publications through this, um, uh, following this path. And I just wanna show a picture of my book, uh, the cover from my book, The Trades of March, 2020, could be found on Amazon and that hopefully still relevant today because on this book, while it was discussing, yeah, I'm, I should show it like so you can see it better. It's a little funky on the screen. Yeah, we see it. Yeah, so um, uh, it discusses a lot of the things, even though I didn't know what would anticipate, but you can really think about how the notions of liquidity and money supply and effect on asset prices. Even if I was wrong about what exactly what happened, it would be interesting to see right now for readers now how things played out from that moment and see how those, money supplies factors turned around from where they were in 2020 and what they're going to lead to in the future. And again, my and again, my parting thought is the same as the beginning thought. Think about policy lags, think about not what is happening right now, about making your thinking flexible, about not just thinking that what happens right now has to continue happening, but what forces might turn it around or reinforce What's going on, either reinforce or turn around what's going on in the world. Well,
0: Alex Garovich, CI of Hante Investments and author of The Trades of March 2020. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure.